Hey everyone, it's Father Sam for The Tangent. Really excited about bringing you this episode. Uh, it's just me flying solo today, I'm really sorry. Uh, our, our boy Matt is uh, out of commission this week. Matt, uh, I'm going to make him talk about this on the podcast one of these. Matt had a concussion and uh, his, he and his wife are expecting their first child this week. So he's, he's both on um, Don't Get Another Concussion and Baby Watch. So it's going to be great. I'm so excited. Uh, well, I'm just really excited for him and Renee to have their baby um, and to finally meet this kid. We've been talking about the baby for so long. I just, I, I can't wait. Like, I have like this secondhand excitement for them. It's, it's going to be great. But today uh, on this episode, we're talking to Father Craig Vosick. Father Craig Vosick is uh, working with the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and the Secretariat for Evangelization and Catechesis. And in particular, his area of focus is on the Eucharistic revival that's taking place right now in the United States. Um, but I I've known Father Craig going all the way back to our years in seminary. He's a priest in the Diocese of Crookston, Minnesota, and uh, he was a couple years behind me at the North American College in Rome. And there, uh, we lived on the same floor. We got to be good friends. Um, and I'm just really excited for what he's doing to see how the Lord has been working through him. So enjoy this episode of The Tangent. Check out the show notes for more information about the Eucharistic Revival. God bless you. So first, I feel really underdressed. I'm sorry. <laughs> you sound great, though. Well, I, 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 at least like the. Fortunately, this is the audio only version. But I, we had a one of our Catholic schools had their golf outing today, so I, I got invited. And then I was driving back doing this examination of conscience. I, I left before we finished, uh, so like I bailed on the last two holes because I knew I wasn't going to make it back in time to do this. Yeah. And then I was like, it was a free. It was a free foursome that I got to be a guest in, which was great. And then when I got there, one of the other guys had already bought the mulligans for us. So like, I didn't even contribute anything to this fundraiser. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, I just went, played golf, did nothing, gave nothing of myself, and then bailed on the whole That's thing. It's the Ministry of Presence. <laughs> That's it. It's not even. It's not even like a. It's like forty minutes away. It's crazy. <laughs> No, but Mitch is a friend of uh, Veritas Catholic Network, and, and he's a big supporter, so I'm, I'm happy to help him and support him in that. Anyway. That's great. Father Craig, it's really good to see you, man. Yeah, it's great to see you, Father. Um, I'm really excited about this. So I didn't realize that you were working with the USCCB, mm-hmm. and then uh, I, I heard you talking about the Eucharistic Revival, and I went and looked, and there you are working in the – was it the Secretary for Evangelization and Catechesis? Right. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. So you're a priest now 12 years? Yeah, exactly right. 12 years. All right. How did you get to being a priest? Because I remember meeting you when you were a new man at the North American College and hearing your story. And it's like, it's that great seminary icebreaker, right? How'd you end up here? How'd you decide that you wanted to be a priest? How'd you decide the Lord was calling you? How'd you hear it? Tell, tell us the story. Yeah, well, the, the funnier one for the North American College was <clears throat> when guys would ask, um, Crookston, nobody's nobody's been here from Crookston. How'd you end up here as a seminarian? And I said, I asked. <laughs> and they're all like, what? You know, because the seminarians are like, if you ask your bishop, that means you're like, you know, a ladder climber and well, all these different things. I'm like, dude, I'm from the farm. I didn't know. I just... <laughs> 
people were saying Rome sounds cool. And I was like, Rome sounds cool. So I'm going to ask if I can go to Rome, you know? So that's the kind of the, for our, our listeners who are, are from the East coast, what is Crookston? Crookston is a town. Crookston is a town. It's also a diocese. Uh, and the, the diocesan town of Crookston where the Bishop resides has like 8,000 people in it. And it's, yeah. Oh my goodness. So I grew up on the farm, Northwest Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah, basically Canada, Minnesota, uh, farmland, good people. Yeah, that's where I'm from. Yeah, so uh, so that's kind of the fun story at the NAC because uh, nobody had ever heard of Crookston. Uh, nobody had heard of a, a, a seminary and asked their bishop to be sent to Rome and actually be sent, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm just a... I'm a trailblazer, you know, in all of those ways. But, <laughs> but um, the more profound, the more profound thing is, uh, I was really lost in high school. Uh, very mm. athletic, uh, participated in sports and lots of extracurriculars, and had lots of uh, went to lots of parties and lots of sinful things. Um, but I had a profound conversion by going to confession my freshman year of college. Uh, making the first good confession of my life, and uh, that changed everything. I, I encountered, mm. I met Jesus that day, um, in a real way, and um, knew that He had saved my life uh, from, from just like, patheticness, but also from sin and also a path to hell. Right, and um, I knew He had saved me from all of that, and saved me for something good. And I, I just realized that day, this guy, this guy died for me. I'm gonna live for him. And that wasn't my call to the priesthood. That was my call to live as a Christian, to be a Christian, which we're all called to. Um, so that was beautiful, brilliant day, uh, January 18th, 2003. And I'll never forget it. Just celebrated 20 years of uh, encountering Jesus. Uh, I mean, I encountered wow. him as a baby. I was baptized, but I was not, so, however you want to say that, subjectively appropriated to the, you know, well, that, all that stuff. I was hardened. Yeah, right, right. I was still a hardened, sin, sinful boy. So I met him. I met him that day, uh, twenty years ago, and then a couple months later, I was at mass, um, and the priest stopped at the altar and he he said, "Here's why we're going to do what we're doing before he uh, consecrated the the host and the chalice." And while he was speaking, I I realized I I, I experienced within myself an invitation from Jesus to do that as well, um, to hmm. to be a priest, and um, I was arrested with joy. Uh, in my spirit. And um, yeah, so that was kind of the, that was the, that was the beginning of the journey. When, when you experienced that call was for you, was it like a voice speaking or was it a, a, a different kind of knowledge, a different, a different sense of call? Uh, the way that I remember it, it was a, it was an interior, but perceptible voice. Uh, yeah. But it would be similar to the way that my own uh, voice sounds to myself. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like God speaking over Moses on Sinai in some sort of drastic way. It was, it was just really, it was attuned to me as me, uh, but it was clear mm -hmm. that it was God. Um, and I think that's part of that sacred interplay of, of how the Lord makes use of our faculties um, to communicate to us in a way that we understand. Um, so yeah, I would call it a voice. I would call it his voice. Uh, but it sounded like my interior voice at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's, it makes it recognizable for you so that you, you know it's real. Yeah. 
right? A voice like that. I, I would I would say the same thing in my own experience of of the call is it was it was this interior voice. It wasn't audible. It wasn't on the outside. But it was it was something deeply inside. But what a powerful voice, yeah. right? And I love that you can pinpoint just like the the day of the conversion experience to like living your your faith more radically, and then that you also have this this other experience and you see it in in the context of the mass too. Right. So I've been How pondering that, that because um, what that priest was doing at that moment was he was a priest, yes, uh, but he was pausing to to evangelize, to teach, to catechize mm -hmm. about the mass. And I've been pondering that part of it over the last year, year and a half, because a, a year and a half ago, I was asked to be one of the preachers for the Eucharistic revival. And... Um, was just pondering like what the Lord was up to leading up to that. And then subsequently uh, appointed to be on the executive team for the, the, for the bishops, for the Eucharistic revival. And now living in DC full-time for the bishops conference, working day to day for the Eucharistic revival. And I've just been thinking of, I've just been pondering back to the mystery of that. It's like, no, this was, this was not just a cult of priesthood. It was that, but it was a cult of priesthood that teaches the mystery of the Eucharist, which we're all called to. But like there was this particular shape to it for me at that time that is now being lived uh, day to day, which is it's it's really at, at times overwhelming how beautiful um, and how personal and how nuanced the Lord's uh, advances towards us are. Yeah, that's awesome. It, so from the time of, of the, the, that experience of the call to the priesthood to actually starting seminary formation, how, how much time elapsed? Like how quick were you able to act on that, on that sense of being called? I was in the seminary four months later. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, with an application that wasn't fully filled out, but they took a chance on me and sent me to the sem. And I was on academic sure, probation because I was a total mess uh, prior to that. I was a total mess. <laughs> Isn't it good that like most people don't know what our grades were like when we were in <laughs> seminary? Uh, <laughs> don't realize like even even the process. I, I always laugh because like I felt like my my time because I started thinking seriously about priesthood as, as a high school student. Mm -hmm. So there was always like this this gap of just I've just got to wait. I just got to wait. I just got to wait. And then I would see guys, yeah, like they experience a call, and four months later they they've got the application in hand and they're they're on their way. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. For me, like my own experience of it was so was so prolonged that I, I couldn't really think of it as something that could happen in that in that time frame. Right. Then I became vocation director, and I found out that it can happen <laughs> that quick. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, did you start with a, with pre theology uh, philosophy at a at a minor seminary, and then and then move mm -hmm. on to theology? Right. I was at the time studying architecture. And I was transitioning from architecture to landscape architecture. And then my conversion took place. And then I was like, that doesn't matter to me anymore. And so I was thinking about like math education and counseling. Uh, but then the invitation to the seminary went. So I went from architecture, landscape architecture, math, uh, and counseling to seminary. All of that in like five months. There was there was no formal change in any way. It went from architecture to, to seminary. So I was at the college seminary finished an undergrad philosophy and humanities and then went to Rome for theology. Okay. And, uh, you stayed for a second cycle. Exactly. Right. Well, you were right. in Rome yeah, so, at the Angelica. Yeah, and she, yeah. So I got a good memory. I'm remembering stuff. You're That's so good. good. You're so good. I don't even remember you. What did you, I don't uh, even remember you being at the seminary, but I guess you, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you were one of my buddies, man. It was great. 
<laughs> you, you lived on Second Convent yeah, with me. Yeah. <laughs> we were on the same hall. Yeah. Um, but what did you what did you do your, your licentiate in? Uh, dogmatic theology and um, okay. theology of um, heaven, eschatology, um, because mm. I I still think this. I think that most people, when they think about heaven or they think about hell, conversely, they don't think about them the way they ought to. And so they're not excited about heaven and they're not afraid of hell. And they kind of think they're not that dissimilar. Um, or they'll even joke about them in ways. It's like, if we understood what heaven was, it'd be the only thing we would desire. And so there was this this way of articulating the mystery of heaven that I thought we had failed at. And I think we're still failing at it because um, I think if we understood what heaven was, we'd be more, uh, we'd, we'd be running towards it a lot, a lot more uh, fervently yeah. than we are. How do we get people to run towards heaven? Yeah, well, I, I never, <clears throat> I never finished that paper um, because this is this is a tangent for sure. Um, I was going to write on a chapter on heaven, a chapter on hell, and then a middle chapter on hope because I thought that the virtue of hope is that which it really anchors us into the mystery of heaven. It's the it's the uh, the anchor behind the veil from the letter to the Hebrews, and so I I was going to write three chapters: heaven, hope, hell, and. Um, I started with hope because it was the one that seemed most contained and easiest to write. And when I wrote it, it ended up being 60 pages, just it. Um, and it was three sections on hope, on presumption, and on despair um, from kind of the Thomistic tradition. And I turned it in to my professor and he said, um, this is enough for your whole thesis. And I said, great. Let's wow. just stop right there. <laughs> so, so I just wrote on. I was going to write on heaven, but I ended up writing on hope, and I walked away. So, hope really is a heavenly gift because I um, didn't even have to write on it. <laughs> but I mean, falling in love with Jesus. Like to get back to the the question you asked, I mean, if we would fall in love with Jesus, know who He is, know know His kindness towards us, and what uh, the plans that He has designed that um, what. what what eye has not seen, what ear has not heard, what has not even entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. I think that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. And I should be right on it because it's, it's just this, it's this absolutely central passage on how heaven, it's just so far beyond what we would allow it to be in our own construct. It is that which we can't even imagine, which is, I think, part of the reason why people aren't like running towards it. They're like, we don't even know what it is because it's so far beyond. Um, but it's what God is, what God is planning to to give to those who, who love him. And it's, it's mm -hmm. everything. And that idea of something that's beyond our imagining, we fall short with that. Uh, I'm, I'm good with the things that I can, that I can conceptualize that I, I can come up with in my, either because of my own experience or the, the things that I can see right around me. So we can start to kind of imagine those things, but the, the idea of something beyond our imagining, something completely past what we can, even even have a concept of that that's a harder thing to to think about um and so yeah i think you're right that heaven then which is what eye has not seen ear has not heard and what we can't even conceive of in, in our minds yeah that that would be a reality too far beyond us right but it's true right. it's still real right so i i mean when i talk about heaven um i i test my theory with ki kids because i think they're they're honest 
um, and they pay attention to to what's going on. And so I would go into a classroom, let's say second graders, third graders, when I was in the parish, and uh, say, hey, how many of you are excited to go to heaven? You know, and you get a couple of them that are kind of excited and the rest of them are like, whatever, I don't even know what that is, you know. Um, clouds, harps, uh, angels floating around, like, mm, yeah, kind of cool, kind of not cool. And so, like, yeah. they're not excited about it. And I said, okay, how about this? How many of you would be interested in going to a place that had limitless pizza forever and you never had to stop and you never had to pay for it and you never had to share it with your sister? And they're like, yeah. And it's like, there's a whole room of cheese pizzas and there's a whole room of pepperoni pizzas, there's a whole room of sausage. And they're like, their eyes are just getting huge. And they're just like, yeah. and I was like, who wants to go there with me? And they're like, me, 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 me. You know, like they're all just like, ah, this is the only thing I want. And then I would, then I would say, that's what heaven's like. And I was, you know, I was very careful, even though they're not going to catch the nuance. I said, it's what heaven's like. Uh, it's not what heaven is. That's not what's going to be in heaven because that right. would be like hell. Heaven is limitless <laughs> yeah, Because pizza. that would actually right. be hell. Right. Like if you actually thought about that rationally, to only have pizza always and forever and you never got to do anything else and you had to keep eating pizza and there was someone forcing pizza down your throat, you would, you, you would, it would be hell after a day uh, or after 30 days or whatever, you know. Um, so, yeah, so, but like it's like that because it's the thing that you desire most. And when you think about it, it, it mm. makes your heart beat more and it makes you excited. It makes you want to run towards it. It makes you jump up and down in your seat and your eyes are bugging wide. That's what heaven's like, you know? So that's what I would, I would start there with them and, um, and then move them towards, you know, uh, what heaven is, um, and that that would be what their joy is. And, um, you know, so sentiments of joy, happiness, delight, peace, all those different things. I think that people, people understand those things. Um, and then when you, when you can grasp, so I think the emotions in a way are better than the, better than the idea, because we understand what it means to be happy and what it means to be joyful, what it means to be, um, peaceful and, uh, that all pain and all, all disease and all struggle and all trial is taken away. Uh, all sorrow is taken away. Like when we start thinking about that emotionally, we're like, oh my gosh, give it to me. You know? So, so I think, um, and the virtue of hope. So going back to the thesis, the virtue of hope does have a sentiment of, of emotion to it, of desire. Mm -hmm. The virtue of hope is tied to desire. And so, um, coming back all the way, um, hope as that, which desires for something great. Um, it does start to taste, uh, of heaven. I made a mistake talking to kids about mm -hmm. heaven a while back. Uh, this kid had asked, like, is there Xbox in heaven? And, you know, like an idiot, I said, no. And <laughs> what I should have said was yes. <laughs> right. And th this idea of, of, of heaven being something that, yeah, our desires are, are, are met, our desires are satisfied. And, uh, I was trying to like get into that mode of thinking with him, but he didn't understand the concept of, of having a desire to play Xbox, right? So absent knowing what a desire to play Xbox was, I just told him, no, there's no Xbox in heaven and like completely shattered this poor boy and like his poor soul. And okay. I got, I got to work on how I present this yeah. to kids. Cause, cause you're, you're absolutely right. That idea of like helping them to see the things that they mm -hmm. want. And to understand then that there's a, there's a deeper desire. And then how do we translate that from their ability to recognize their desires? I mean, they're children. And so there's, there's a developmental thing that we've got to take into consideration, but 
translating then that desire, those those earthly desires into the desire for the supernatural, into the desire like for, for the spiritual. Um, when you talk to adults, even sometimes they would have a hard time with, with recognizing, um, was it C.S. Lewis who says that every man who goes to a brothel is really looking for God? Um, that there's, there are these desires that we have, uh, but we try to meet them with earthly, uh, with earthly remedies. And, and what we need is, is the heavenly remedy. What we need is that, that spiritual yeah. life. So like kind of trying to make that, that journey from the, the earthly desire to the, to the heavenly. Yeah. So there's two things that are meant to be integrated in this concept, I think, but it's, I, I, I usually approach them as distinct uh, for the sake of, of uh, catechesis. One is the reality of desire and that heaven is the fulfillment of all desire. I leave that, even though it needs to be integrated with the second point that I'm going to make, I leave that separate and I let the kid like, is there going to be Xbox? Uh, is there going to be the things that I love the most? Yes, the things that you love the most are going to be there as far as desire goes. Yeah. Um, but then on right. the other piece, so I usually keep it separate because people can't work through this all in one shot. It's the, the the task of fitting us for heaven is the purification and reordering of desires to the right ends, you know. And so that's the growth of virtue and the and the growth of of all of all of a, who we are. It's the growth of all of that. And I usually keep that in a separate spot. Um, because it can seem like drudgery if you move that into the, the point of like fulfillment of desire. So it's like, no, the things that you desire most, you're going to be fulfilled in your desire. And I kind of leave it like that. And then the other one is like, and you should also start to think like God. And <laughs> so like, you should start to desire the things that God desires and all these different things over here in right. virtue growth. And so when people are purified in their desire, that's what, if we don't do it on earth and we make it to to God, we'll have to go through purgatory and it's going to be the reordering of those desires so that they're attuned to God because you can only desire what God desires when you're in heaven. That's what heaven is. And so I, I do that on a, on a separate trajectory because especially, I mean, for kids that you can't hold both of those things together. Uh, but even for adults, it's hard enough uh, to it's like, okay, the purification of desire, but all my desires are going to be fulfilled. How does that all work? Okay, let's keep them separate. Let's work on them. And we'll start to see that they begin to be integrated when I say something like, because I'm growth, I've grown in virtue so much that I actually love the other person for their good, which is what we always say you're supposed to do. I love them for what is good for them. Um, and then I start to see that in heaven, I will be loving the others for the good that is for them. Like then the two are now together. They're integrated, uh, even though they kind of came together conceptually and experientially, possibly in two different ways. Yeah. Do you think we're at a place in our culture where that that idea of the desire for heaven has, has really just faded. Like we don't really think about it. We kind of, in general, most people I think would, would look at heaven as an automatic. Uh, I die, I go up, I get wings and a halo and somebody hands me an angel and then I get my cloud and I float along and, and everything's fine. Like heaven's kind of a given. Um, and then hell has lost its, its, its frightfulness. So a lot of people don't don't really look at, at hell as something that's that's frightening. But then, have we caught up with our preaching? You know, do do you still sometimes feel like there's maybe it's more of a stereotype? I think people expect fire and brimstone. They expect to be judged. Uh, they expect to be told that they're going to hell. Um, they might be surprised if they're not told that. Um, and maybe we should take that into account too. But like, I, I wonder have have we lost? as the concept of even eternity, whether it's eternity spent with God or separate from God, has that concept kind of gotten lost culturally so, so that we've got to rebuild it? And how do we, how do we recover right. that? Right. 
so there's a whole bunch of things there that you're you're touching upon, um, and I I don't think it's absolute in either direction for any of it. So um, there are plenty of people who presume heaven uh, as opposed to hell, um, but there are plenty of people who uh, presume nothing. Uh, they actually presume that there's like the, the yeah. greatest thing that they can hope for is actually just a good life here because there's nothing after this life. So you've got people who presume heaven, but then you've got other people who don't think there's anything after this life at all. And then you've got people that are presuming hell. Um, and so you've got people that are presuming all those different things. Um, and I think behind the person, I don't want to overstate this, but it's this is my hypothesis behind the person or underneath the person who says that they're presuming heaven um, because, you know, of course, God's going to send me there. There's nothing bad I could do. He's God of love, so he's going to send me to heaven. I think underneath that person, in many instances, is a person who is so despairing and un mm. that and, and is unwilling to deal with their despairing uh, that they have to give themselves this uh, presumptive posture towards heaven because they can't they can't mm. possibly think about the fact that they actually think that they're probably going to go to hell um so i think i think behind a lot of the presumers yeah. is a despairer um but even if that's not the case in all situations this is going back to my thesis spot on um there's only one virtue that matters here and it's hope and hope stands in between presumption and despair um it's the only thing mm. that's real hope hope says i deserve hell but he's going to grant, but he's, but he's willing, he's offering me heaven. Um, and the yeah. presumer, you know, that, that really resonates because the, the experience that I've had so often is of encountering somebody who by all, by all externals is, is really solid, really good. They, they're at church. They, they've lived a good life. They're, they're not bad, but as they come to towards the end of their life, they have this question. I just, I, I just don't know if I've been good enough. And these aren't people who have necessarily fallen into that presumptive category, but like there's there's that question of have I been good enough? And then you find the people who are in that presumptive category, and part of it, it's almost like the presumption I'm I'm fine I'm going to heaven is a defense mechanism. It's it's a defense posture that they've taken because to confront the reality of their own sin is so painful, and they to prevent themselves from having to confront that that pain. And, and that distance that they feel within themselves and from God, they, they've, they've chosen instead to just believe everything's fine. I've got this all together. Uh, but what they really need is, is the confrontation with their own sinfulness and actually how that confrontation then opens them to the possibility of God's grace and to, and to God's mercy. Like you talked about your, your first good confession after, after many years and what that did. It's like when you, when you break it open, then you start to, to see for real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's something in it that we are, um, we're so focused on ourselves that we're not thinking about who God is. And so when we think about like the phrase, God is love, um, we add to it, even though he doesn't add to it. He just says, God is love. First uh, John chapter four, God is love. But we add to it like God is love towards those who are deserving. <laughs> God is love towards those who are good enough. Yeah. Like, no, no, no. God is love. And so like First uh, John chapter 4 um, and Romans chapter 5, these are the things I, I'm going in on when I'm preaching uh, right now during the revival. Um, 
the, so first John chapter four, this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he has first loved us. Like, it's not about whether we first loved him or whether we loved him enough or loved him not enough. He loves us first. So like, it's the priorities on who he is, not who we are or who we aren't. It's on who he is. Um, but like Romans chapter five, I can't get past it, man. I can't get past Romans chapter five. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. For Christ, while we were still helpless, yet he died at the appointed time for the ungodly. Um, and then it goes on. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Indeed, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled through the death of the Son, how much more now reconciled will we be saved? So in Romans chapter 5, Paul has us claim that we were helpless ungodly sinners and enemies four things that none of us would want to say about ourselves ever ever at all he says no we're all four of those things on our own i'm helpless ungodly i'm a sinner and i'm I'm an enemy and that has nothing to do with whether god is going to come and save us reconcile us send a son for us it's like no while we were dead in our sins god sent a son to die for us because he loves Mm us it's his initiative he is the one who is loved and so I think it's, I think the priority has to be given back to like, not who we are, but who God is and um, not whether we are good, but the fact that God is good. God saves us not because we are good, but because he is good. Um, and that's hard for us because we want to, we want to be our own savior, but uh, there's only one and it's God in Jesus Christ. Now you're working with the USCCB yeah. in, in the secretary for its evangelization right. and catechesis. Um, first of all, did you ever expect uh, at the at that closing banquet at the NAC, right? When when they they read our names, and they say uh, Father Craig Vosick sent to preach the gospel in Crookston, Minnesota. Father Samuel Kachuba sent to preach the gospel in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Like, did did you ever think that you're 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 leaving Crookston at some point to go and, and serve at at a national level? Um, and they're going to send you to this to this kind of a, a work. No, it never crossed my mind. Um, there was uh, there were kind of ideas in my mind that maybe I would like to go work in a seminary sometime, or you know, so like the idea of serving outside my my diocese doesn't have a Catholic university, it doesn't have a doesn't have a seminary, it doesn't have anything at the higher level of Catholicism. Um, it has the chancery office. But um, it doesn't have anything at that kind of higher level. And I had a degree that can be served. You use at a higher level or whatever. So um, so I just thought I would go home. I didn't, you know, maybe I'd go outside my diocese to work in, you know, in Minnesota. There is a seminary in the southern part of the state. So maybe I'd go there someday. But uh, no, to work for the Bishop's Conference um, for a three-year initiative, uh, the National Eucharistic Revival, that didn't, no, that wasn't there. Mm. <laughs> So is, is your main focus now in this work, it, it's on the Eucharistic yeah. revival. Are, are you doing anything that has to do with, with catechesis, with um, the uh, Christian initiation of adults, of, of the catechetical norms that are being established for, for the country? No, I mean, I see all that. I mean, work in the office with them, but they brought, they, they have a staff already for evangelization and catechesis, and those people are doing the day-to-day work of the, of the conference there. Um, but because the revival initiative falls under evangelization and catechesis, and they already have full-time jobs, uh, but now this is going to be added, they're like, we need some, we need someone who can be fully devoted to this good right. work. And so my Got my it. work full-time is for the National Eucharistic Revival. Um, but I, yeah, I see the things that they're doing for the Ministry of Catechesis, 
uh, catechist and for the Institute on the Catechism um, and the different things that are happening. I see that, but I, I don't uh, do much with it. Okay. You're going to be working with my bishop yeah, exactly. quite a bit on last week. Uh, bishop Tejano, weeks ago, yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, all right. So as, as you're doing that, uh, can you talk a little bit about why the USCCB makes the distinction between evangelization and catechesis and what that distinction means for practical purposes? Sure. Um, and, well, interestingly enough, uh, the Institute for the Catechism, uh, which is getting up and running, they're, they're kind of bringing those two words together. Um, and they're saying, let's call it an evangelizing catechesis. Um, mm-hmm. So so even our catechesis ought to be carrying evangelism or evangelization in it. So um, you can correct me, Father, uh, as I get this wrong. But in my understanding, there's, from remembering the way that we use these big words rightly, there is the first, um, the first show, the first um, proclamation of Christianity to someone who does not know it. And so that would be part of evangelization, which in, really in its beginning would be called the kerygma. You give someone the, the initial proclamation of the life, death, resurrection of the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the kerygma, the kernel, the central proclamation. Um, and so you, you give the kerygma uh, as part of the, the first go of evangelization, evangelization, meaning to proclaim the mystery of Christ to those who do not know him so that they might adhere to him for eternal life, right? So that's evangelization. And that work doesn't, it's not just a beginning work that has an end. It's all of life, but that's how it begins. Um, and then catechesis um, is the, the continuing education of those who are already in Christ, um, the, the work of uh, coming to full stature in Christ. Um, so that's that's the basic distinction that I would draw just uh, as we're kind of chatting here. I'm not giving a, I'm not giving a course on it to you, so you can correct me if those things are wrong, but <laughs> that's the distinction I would draw. Um, and so when they bring them back together uh, now saying that we need to have an evangelizing catechesis, uh, there's a reason for that, and that is that um, in America, there's an idea that we have, there's different ways of saying this. We have sacramentalized our kids, but we haven't catechized mm-hmm. them or that we have catechized them, but not evangelized them. So how can we say that in the negative and get to the good? If I have sacramentalized someone without catechizing someone, that means they've gone through the sacraments, but they don't even know. They don't know and they don't care uh, about right. that. If I catechize someone, but not evangelize them, then I have taught them something, but in reference to no living relationship. And so it's still don't care. Um, but if I evangelize someone, that means that they are falling in love with the person of Jesus Christ who has died and risen for their salvation, and they are now in a living relationship wanting to love him, to know him, to love him, and serve him so that it might be with him for eternal life. They've been evangelized. And so then they're eager to be catechized because they want to know the one that they love. So an evangelizing catechesis would be, well, we need to continue to teach, which is to catechize, but we can't skip evangelization. And so let's make sure that all of our catechesis, all of our teaching is buttressed uh, with a foundation of proclaiming the saving and loving initiative mm-hmm. of God and Jesus Christ. So I'm, I'm guessing that's what they're up to with uh, an evangelizing catechesis. Yeah. That's that's the I think the thing that makes the most sense is an evangelizing catechesis because you're right that distinction between the person who's never heard the gospel before and so needs to be introduced uh, needs to be evangelized but then eventually you're going to also start to teach them the content like they've they've had that opportunity to hear the kerygma, uh to have something 
uh, told to them that inspires their interest, that sparks something in their heart that says this Jesus is real and he wants to speak to me. He wants to have a relationship with me. All right, now I'm going to get into what that means. And let's, let's start breaking that open and, and studying it more. I need to conceptualize more in my mind. But you're right, with, with kids especially, because we start with them at such a young age, um, and what we're doing, yeah, we're, we're trying to teach them things, but have we really introduced them to the, to the lived relationship? And so they keep going sometimes just through catechesis, but without a lived relationship, without the, the sense of Jesus being real to them. So the more that we can bring Jesus in, the more that we can make that real, that relationship real, uh, the better off we are. So that evangelizing catechesis really needs to take place. That, that's a very powerful idea. I like it. I'm glad you're part of it. I'm glad you're, you're doing this. All right, let's talk about the Eucharistic Revival. Yeah. Because this is this is the thing that I'm I'm actually really excited about, and I'm glad that you're doing it. Um, I was excited to see the list of of uh, preachers for the Eucharistic Revival come out. Uh, what does it mean? First, what's the Eucharistic Revival? Let's get started. Yeah, there. the Eucharistic Revival is a petition to God um, that He would act in a powerful way in the United States of America to um, bring us from either the point of death or death itself in our spiritual lives to a living relationship with the son Jesus. Um, and through that, that we would come to love him in the provision that he has made for us, which is uh, the Eucharist, which is the source and summit of Christian life. And so it is first and foremost, a revival, punto, like, like it's a revival. Um, we're asking God to heal our land, uh, but, but the revival can't just be like, you're dead and you're coming back to life. It has to be, you're dead or dying, coming back to life and to encounter the one that is making you alive, who is Jesus. And he's given to himself, uh, he's given himself to us in the Holy Eucharist, uh, in the Holy Mass and in his, his true presence in the, in the sacrament of his body and blood. Um, so that's the Eucharistic Revival. And it comes because um, most of our Catholics can't articulate the doctrine of the Holy Eucharist in a, in a way that makes right. it seem like they know it. Um, it comes at a time when 80% of Catholics don't go to Mass on Sunday, even though there's a precept to attend Sunday Mass for your life. Uh, it comes at a time uh, post-COVID when churches were closed and people uh, started watching Mass on TV and they're like, well, maybe I could just watch Mass on TV and that's probably the same, right? And it's like, nope. You can you watch Jesus be crucified on TV or you're going to watch him or you're going to go be with him at the cross. You know, like, um, so there's just a whole lot of things that have been stacking up for a long time. Um and those are just kind of the things that we can look at statistically. And there's just a, a deeper cancer um, of secularism, materialism, uh, that's subjectivism. I mean, just all the isms. Uh, they're all there in plain view. And so we need we need a real shock to the system and come back to the center of all things and proclaim um, what, what we are as church, who we are as church, and what we're about. Um, so, yeah, we need a revival and we need a Eucharistic revival. Hmm. I love. I always love the idea of any kind of revival being really centered on the Eucharist, right? We. I, I would imagine that the the very place that you had that moment of of being called back into relationship with God and, and being rightly ordered, I, I would imagine that the Eucharist was pretty heavily, significantly involved. 
uh, in that in that time. I know for for myself and, and countless others. I mean, see like the success of something like a, a Steubenville conference or, or something where adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, the Mass, these things are are front and center throughout. So the the encouragement is to kids to to be at Mass, to pray, to be in the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, to receive the Eucharist, um, and then to to foster then a love for Jesus in the Eucharist. Um, you know, so as we're recording this, we just got through First Communion season, and uh, I love First Communions. There's there's always like a little nerve. Like I, I do the practice with the kids, where I show them the the plastic container that has the hosts in it. So I'm like this is not Jesus, but it's going to become Jesus. And so they're looking at it. And this year they were really funny. Like where does that come from? And I said, well, this comes from the Kavanaugh Company. Well, what's that? I said, it's a it's a company that makes hosts. They're based in Rhode Island. Actually, their their factory is right next to a church, and I've been to that church. It's <laughs> like, why? Why did you go there? Do you go all the way to Rhode Island to buy it? I said, no, I order it, and they send it to me. It's great. And they're like, they're really confused by this idea. I'm like, but this is not Jesus, and I'm showing them the hosts. But I said, but I want you to get the sense of something of what it's going to feel like. So we practice, you know, you do practice communion and everything. And I keep reminding him, this is not Jesus. This is not Jesus. This is not the Eucharist. I'm like, okay, so this is not the Eucharist. No, it's not the Eucharist. But then the the kid, like, you just you just worry about him. This is actually why you do the practice too, so that as they receive communion, like if a kid has a texture issue when they eat or something, like you don't have that problem at the first communion mass. <laughs> and so have a kid like, you know, spitting out our Lord <laughs> or anything. But it's really powerful when they come up and it's there's a difference there's a difference at their at the first communion with the way that they receive and with the the sense that they have they they've they've now come to this understanding this is this was not Jesus before but now it is there's a beautiful faith in that and it, it kind of brings me back to my own my own first communion i'm like what did i know like do you feel like at your first communion you understood who it was you were receiving i, I don't remember that time uh, of my life um, but I, even if, even what I do remember from that time, I remember the old lady who was making me learn the Apostles' Creed and I thought it was boring. So I would imagine that I thought that the First Holy Communion was boring too. <laughs> I remember the day, but I, I don't remember what I knew. I don't remember what I knew. And I think there was something where like I had an understanding, it's, it's Jesus, but it wasn't until high school that I really started to understand that Jesus is present there and, and what the real presence meant. And then being introduced to um, both a deeper sense of the moment of receiving Holy Communion and, and how powerful that ought to be uh, and how powerful it can be. Not, it's not always going to be powerful. You know, um, I remember talking to somebody who had been uh, recently returned to the faith and their first experiences of receiving communion after they came back were so powerful because they just knew the the presence of Jesus. And then that that powerful emotional experience started to fade for them, and they were worried they were doing something wrong. <laughs> we were talking with them about this. You're not doing anything wrong. Keep keep doing what you're doing. Uh, we can't always be overwhelmed. <laughs> it's just not good for us. But then it wasn't just the the experience of receiving Jesus in the Eucharist. It was also the experience of adoring him coming to adoration, being able to see the Lord present there on the altar in the monstrance, like, and just realizing Jesus is waiting for me. You know, he's, he's here for me. And, and what a powerful thing. It's not only that at mass I get to receive him, but that he's, he also stays. And so going back to that point about 
what what hope does for us in terms of increasing our desire for God. You start to realize his desire for us is expressed so perfectly in the Eucharist that he remains mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. you know, always, always present. Um, as you're, as you're getting into this Eucharistic revival, then, um, what's bubbling up as it's, as it's being presented and as now dioceses are starting to implement it and you're starting to see some, some feedback, what, what, what do you see happening? Yeah, well, there's a lot happening. Um, there's a lot of beautiful things happening. Um, and then there's a lot of strange things happening. <laughs> um, the beautiful things are, um, Bishop Cousins, who's overseeing the revival at this point, um, said that this first year, which we're almost done with, had, it was really about rallying the base. That's what he was just kind of using easy language, rallying the base. And so yeah. getting those people who actually believe in the Eucharist to get fired up uh, about their belief in the Eucharist and to maybe take some steps towards, um, you know, kind of calibrating a plan for how they can do something in their parishes or whatever. So now we're moving into this parish year. And uh, the hope is that parishes take it very seriously. Um, what can we do? What can what can we be about? How can we how can we um, show forth the mystery of Christ in a way that's uh, more winsome, uh, you know, more faithful and more winsome uh, to to the broader culture? And so I think everybody's going to be looking at that in their own particular way um, and implementing it in their own particular way. We're putting out what we think are good ideas, uh, but we know that they're not exhaustive in any way. Um, so there's a lot of beautiful things. Uh, people are holding events. They're expanding their adoration times. They're um, they're having uh, conferences where they're we're preaching, preaching different topics around uh, the life of Jesus, the Eucharist, the institution of the Eucharist, the Holy Mass, different things like this. Um, and so yeah, there's just a lot of good things um, that way. I'm seeing people being affected um, because I think there's a number of preachers who are like, okay, what we have been doing might not have been working since we have such a high rate of people who don't believe this. How can I approach this differently? And so the preachers are becoming more creative and they're, they're maybe studying a little more or they're paying attention. Like, how can I, how can I be more, I don't know, uh, how can I make more sense? <laughs> You know, when I'm when I'm when I'm trying my best, you know, so uh, we're seeing a lot of encouragement, mo- encouraging momentum um, in a lot of domains. I mean, that's kind of all general. Uh, I could share some glory stories, I suppose, about different things. But, but then there's also, uh, you know, kind of strange things happening. Um, people that are, well, I guess they're not so strange, but they're they're just, um, you know, showing us where we're at, because if if we're at it, if we're at a point where 70% of people can't say what the Eucharist is and 80% of people who are Catholic aren't going to Mass, then the kinds of things that people are going to say as commentary about the revival are probably going to match that in a lot of ways. And so there's a lot of like articles mm. coming out that are saying things like bishops have this big plan and what they really need to do is just this one th- simple thing at the parish. It's like, okay, well, I saw that on like, you know, you see that on like TikTok. It's like three three. Three simple things to save the world. It's like, well, probably not three simple things are going to save the world or one simple thing or whatever. But we're, so we're seeing people say things like, you know, if you if you celebrate Mass this way or if you receive Holy Communion this way or if you do this certain thing, then uh, then all of our troubles will be fixed. And it's like, okay, well, those might be helpful, but they're probably not going to they're probably not going to be all the way. But then you see people that are actually thinking all the way through. People like um, Monsignor James Shea at the University of Mary. Just I know him well. That's mm-hmm. why I will point him out. But the way that he's reflecting on this, he's saying, okay, here's what we know, but then there's probably symptoms beneath that. What are they? And then he's really weighing in on what those things might be. And he's like, okay, how do we respond? And how can I make the entire university at the service of uh, combating these diseases of our time? Like, that's really inspiring. Um, and I hope those kinds of thoughts get out further. 
Uh, and there's probably lots of other people that yeah. are saying things like that. So um, I think it's just there's just a whole lot of uh, really beautiful uh, reflection and articulation that's going on. Um, there's some really cool things coming. Uh, so some of the cool things that are coming, uh, there's going to be a, a nationwide pilgrimage from four different routes um, mm. going to Indianapolis before the Congress next year. And like that's like that's like the thing that's people are talking about the most. They're like, I can't believe, especially priests, priests are like, dude, or seminarians. They're like, dude, you're going to, you're going to process the blessed sacrament across the whole country. I'm in, you know? Like, so it's like interesting yeah. what kind of captures the priestly heart uh, or the uh, seminarian heart. You know, it's like, okay, that's, there's something about that, that like guys are getting fired up about. Um, we have an entire religious order that's like, do the pilgrimage. We will staff it. I mean, they're just like so fired up about it. They want to get after it, you know? So, so anyway, those are, that's a lot of that's random awesome. thoughts for you, Father. But uh, there's a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. Yeah. I like it. I think the uh, those lists of like do these simple things and it's it's going to change everything. There's there's truth to them, but then you're right. There's a huge limitation to them because it's it's like we're, yeah we're just gonna we're gonna paint over what's what's damaged on the wall, but we're not necessarily going to fix the structural integrity of the wall. Um, so some of those things can be really good for for touching up. And for um, maybe presenting a, a better a better way, mm-hmm. and, and like at the very least, make people think this is important. But then we still have to get at the heart of of what's missing, which for so many people is that they don't have a lived relationship with the Lord. They don't understand it. You know, they don't understand what the Mass is, much less what the Eucharist mm-hmm. is. Uh, they don't understand that they're loved infinitely by by God. We can improve for sure. Like there's no question we can improve the the way that we celebrate mass. The, there's no question that there's there's some things that the church actually asks us to do that we need to start doing, um, because the church has been telling us that we should be doing this all along. Um, but those things by themselves won't do anything. Just as the very uh, abuses of liturgical practice and everything by themselves aren't helping anything. Right. So we've got to have the, all of it together. Um, I, I really love the, the procession. For the, so we're organizing here for the first time for Corpus Christi. Um, I'm not actually sure when this podcast is going to come out. By the time this comes out, it might, may have already happened. <laughs> um, but uh, we're going to have a Corpus Christi procession here in my parish for the first time. And uh, I'm like, I'm so excited about it. the Knights of Columbus are stepping in and, and they're really excited. We get, went to the parks and rec department right across the street from me. There's a, there's a park. And so we asked their permission to, to be there. And the idea is we're going to process from the church down to the park and then from the park, uh, bless to the four directions of the compass and give benediction to the, to the whole town and then process back to the church. So really short, uh, really simple. Uh, but, I think something that's very, that's very meaningful. And then the town was good. They, they were really kind to us. They said, sure, you can, you can use the park. Nobody, nobody else is using it that day. Anyway, <laughs> there's no official activities happening there. The police department is great. They're like, we'll come, we'll direct traffic and make sure you guys can cross the street safely. Cause it's kind of a busy road. I'm like, this is, this is great. This is so cool. But then that idea of the national procession and I'm fortunate enough that that procession's coming through my diocese because we're we're on the corridor, you know. <laughs> um, so part of it is it, it passes by uh, Father Michael McGivney's tomb, which is not in my diocese, but it's close by. Uh, and then it comes through on the way to New York, and then continues on from there. Uh, so we've got a priest in the diocese who's helping to coordinate that. 
and uh, I'm I'm really excited to see how that how that all unfolds and what that's what that's going to look mm-hmm. like. That's going to be a powerful. It's a it's a public display. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So it's um, um, it's a and that that public display can be so evangelical. Exactly. Why are you doing this? It gives it gives us the excuse to say this is why we do this. This is why this matters. Like, yeah, we're we're going to inconvenience you a little bit because we might block traffic for a little while, but. I mean, how powerful to say this is why we're we're doing this. It's the public manifestation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So public manifestation is is big because uh, we're otherwise pretty timid and fearful, and a lot of people don't say much. So you're doing it together. It kind of gives some strength, some fortitude to be out there proclaiming this. It's a public manifestation. It so in that way, it's a public manifestation in that we're saying as a body, not just. Um, not just that we're growing in courage to go out, but like we're saying, we actually believe this is this is God, and like when the, we're doing it outside of our church building, like this is a, we are we're really out here doing this. I mean, it's a strong sign, um, and it's evangelical in that it, there might be some sharing going on, but but even beyond that, um, the image that I've had for for uh, Eucharistic processions, the Eucharistic uh, pilgrimage for next year in particular, is like. And it's just a fact, but uh, I don't know why I didn't catch this until as I was pondering on it this last year. But Jesus wasn't just in Cana. He wasn't just in Capernaum. He wasn't just in Jericho. He wasn't just in Jerusalem. He walked from town to town. And as he walked from town to town, he encountered people and people were healed and people were ministered to. Zacchaeus crawled up into a tree because he heard that Christ was passing by. And then Jesus says to Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house. And so like he raised the dead. He healed the the sick. He uh, brought salvation to people's houses by walking from town to town. And for the first time possibly in our nation's history, Jesus Christ, as he walked from town to town in Israel, is going to walk from town to town in the United States of America. And why wouldn't we expect Mm. the same results to come from that? People encountering him, people being healed, people coming to faith, people repenting, uh, salvation coming into their lives. Why why wouldn't we? So like, uh, that's what I'm expecting uh, when we do this Eucharistic pilgrimage next year. It's like, why wouldn't he do this what he did in israel why wouldn't he do it now it's the same god same jesus under a different he's coming in a different in a in a different mode but it's the same man it's the same man it's the same god man so i'm fired up right that's so cool i love it as a preacher of the eucharistic revival all right uh you are one of what 50 guys something like that sent out to to preach about this um so far where have you gone to preach What's what's the experience like of, of going out to preach the Eucharistic revival? Yeah, well, I've gone kind of all over the place. Um, uh, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota when I was still there. Uh, but then kind of further than that, um, Nebraska, Louisiana, Florida, Texas, um, Oklahoma. Um, yeah, it's kind of all over the place. It, uh, I, was in, I was in Detroit. Uh, going to be going to a bunch of other places. So anyway, going to... Bishop Mugenberg's Diocese of Reno, Nevada next year, which awesome. is pretty cool. Probably go to, hopefully go to Helena, Montana with Bishop Vetter, who was a priest, a uh, faculty member at the NAC as well. So anyway, um, yeah, kind of That's going awesome. all over the place, the 50 guys. We try to put try to put the guys to uh, places that are either near them or are fitting to their, their best ability or like the things that they cite that mm. they're more comfortable in. So either a priest convocation or a youth ministry event or a you know family th- or whatever the thing might be, you know. So we're trying to set guys up for for the kind of the situation that they feel the best in and we think that they'd be the best in. But mm. um so it's been really great. Okay. So a, a pastor like me wants to have a, a Eucharistic revival preacher come to his yeah. parish. 
um, what does that pastor do to make a Eucharistic revival preacher come to his parish? Yeah, so he um, gets in touch with his diocese, which has a diocesan point person for the revival, and that person does all of okay. the petitions to the USCCB to get a preacher because we have 50 preachers and we have 17,000 parishes, and so we can't have 17,000 parishes write to us. Um, but we can have one person from each diocese, you know, 180 diocese, we can do that. Um, so that's, that's the way. Um, and then the, the preachers go out, uh, they're trying to, yeah, they're trying to keep the preachers to like kind of multi-parish or diocesan events, because again, there's only 50 right now. And the, the reason why there's only 50 is because, um, that's just what they had the time to sort of set up. I mean, what we should be doing right now is, um, enlisting more and more and more guys uh to go out uh and to preach because there's so many gifted preachers uh, to go out and to preach so um but yeah right now we're limited we have 50 guys and um so they can only go so many places but um so that's how you do it anyway and what we were tasked to do we all came together last year and what we were tasked to do is to preach on the three elements of the eucharist um, sacrifice presence and communion uh, in particular, but to give a charismatic proclamation of the Eucharist. This is going back to that conversation about evangelizing mm. catechesis. Um, we're supposed to give a charismatic proclamation. So we're supposed to anchor our preaching of the Eucharist in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, so that we invite people into a repenting relationship with him where they yield to him as Lord uh, and master mm. of their life, where they give their lives to him. They repent of their sins and receive forgiveness of their sins and, and have the Holy Spirit poured over them. Like, 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 like Pentecost, like early church, sort of like, let's do what the church does kind of stuff, you know? And um, and then through that proclamation of the charisma to then say, okay, you want to you want to you want to come to the cross, you want to come to the place where he died and rose, that, that's holy mass, and you want to be fed by his mm -hmm. living heavenly presence, glorified at the right hand of the Father. Yep, that's him in the Holy Eucharist at holy mass. You want to go to the wedding supper of the Lamb? Yeah, come to holy mass. You know, then we really get into those other themes, but we're supposed to start with the charisma. Mm. I think that that's important. And then when you do that, if, you, if you're starting with the kerygma, we're going to tell you the story of, of the Jesus who loves you and who, who wants you to have this relationship with you, who saved you from sin and death and who's promised you eternal life. And then to make the connection. Yeah, because I don't think we don't always even knowing it, do we make the connection that as I'm preparing for Mass, as I'm going into Mass, as Mass is being celebrated, that this is the wedding feast of the Lamb, that this is uh, the the foretaste of, of the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, yeah, we don't necessarily make that make that connection. So then you're, you're talking about the different presence. So like the, the would, you, would you say sacrifice, communion, and presence? Mm -hmm. Sort of the, the, th the three themes, because that was something else that I was, I was really thinking about, that we have the Mass where Jesus is made present, in the Eucharist. Then we have Holy Communion, like the moment of communion when we are united to him in the Eucharist. But you can go to Mass and experience the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist without receiving communion. Uh, you, it's, it's possible to do that and then to know that the importance of receiving Jesus in communion and, and that, that comfort. Like I've even had people who have been away from the church for a long time say, Father, I've got this thing coming up and I'd like to be able to receive communion at it. What do I have to do? And so we talk about like, well, you should start coming back to mass. You should go to confession uh, and just like the really practical steps. And I don't know, even know if they fully understand why it is that they want to receive communion, but they somewhere, these, these are people who they were evangelized in some way, they were catechized in some way. And now this important moment has come and they, they realize I, 
I want the Eucharist in that time. I'm like, I, I just want to let Jesus do the rest. Like, I don't want to get in your way, Lord. You, you just, you just take this. But then there's, there's beyond sacrifice and communion, it's presence. That Jesus remains for us in the tabernacle, that, that he's there, that every, every time you pass in front of a Catholic church, you're, you're passing in front of the presence of Jesus really, truly here. Um, and then adoration in particular and, and how powerful adoration can be. Ah, have you done a lot of work with, uh, with youth in your priesthood, Father? Yeah, I was a chaplain at a university. Uh, I was a chaplain for a high school, and then I was an athletic chaplain for four years at a, at a, at a Catholic university. So, I mean, like a, as far as high school and college, okay. I'd, if I never talked to a middle schooler again, I'd probably be all right. Um, I think they're kind of these <laughs> aliens that don't, I don't know if they're human, but uh, that's a joke for all those who are listening. But, uh, well, kind of a joke, kind of not a joke. Uh, but high school and college, I've worked with them, yeah. Yeah. I always figure about seventh grade, they stop. Like their humanity just takes takes a break. Um <laughs> And then comes back. Yeah. Like their humanity returns uh, as they as as they like get into like the end of eighth grade. All of a sudden, like you're back. You're a person again. It's it's great. Yeah. Uh, anyway, because I, I I think a lot about like at many youth events and a lot of youth work, we have the opportunity to introduce our young people to Eucharistic adoration. They're familiar with mass because it's a regular part of their practice. They might not know the ins and outs of the mass. They might not have a really deep sense of what's actually happening at every mass, but you know, they have a they have a sense of it at least. So they can they can get into it. But then you introduce them to Eucharistic adoration. And that's often where their their real faith in Jesus in the Eucharist deepens or comes alive for the first time. Right. And then they come back to mass with a renewed sense. So obviously, like there's this this beautiful, just a, a beautiful complementarity between those two mm-hmm. things. Like mass leads you into deeper adoration, but adoration can be that experience that also leads you to understand and appreciate the gift that the Eucharist is in Holy Communion, that the gift that every mass can be. And like, what a powerful thing to realize that there's there's just no contradiction. These things just go together, mm-hmm. and they go together so perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, so the Mass is the inexhaustible treasure of the Father's love. Um, And so it's inexhaustible. Therefore, each element of that which is inexhaustible can be stretched out or or just kind of pulled from and pondered um, and touching upon that which is inexhaustible. So like... um, um, like take uh, take the liturgy of the hours. Um, it's a prolongation of the liturgy of the word through the sanctification of the day, and um, so we are enriched by the readings at Holy Mass, uh, and so we can be enriched by the wealth, the treasury of Scripture throughout the rest of the day. Um, Priest five times a day, some people two times a day, some orders seven times a day. I mean, like you can just there's there's no end. You know, you take the Benedictines and they're just they're just in the treasure the inexhaustible treasure of the liturgy of the word through the liturgy of the hours throughout the day. So you can take that for the liturgy of the word, Lexio Divina, whatever it might be, but um, the the mystery of the cross, you can you can kneel before a crucifix and be brought um, through prayer into the inexhaustible mystery of the crucifixion of our Lord, but just by just praying before a crucifix and you can be drawn into the depths. Um, uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, and so also the, the real presence of Christ uh, substantially present in the sacrament of the, his body and blood, 
reposed in the tabernacle or exposed in the monstrance is a prolongation of the adoration that we um, that we are about in holy mass, um, but it's within the rest of the liturgical action, and so it's it's brief, you know. Like when the priests hold up the host and you adore the host, it's only for a few seconds uh, at holy mass, um, but uh, but we can we can extend that, you know, through through adoration of the blessed sacrament, and it's 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 an unfolding, a further unfolding of the inexhaustible treasure of the holy of this holy sacrifice of the mass. So, so it's just glorious. Um, and the way that I, the way that I've kind of been putting it recently is, um, like, I don't just, and I don't want to, I don't want to undervalue the mass when I say this, um, but if the mass is the the re- representation of the 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 the, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, which is an activity, and so we call it an action. And I'm grossly understating all this stuff, um, but like, I don't just I don't just go to someone um, for the event. Uh, I also want to go to their house and just like sit with them and hang out with them before the event or after the event, and like live in a relationship with them apart from the event. Um, and I'm not trying to even necessarily put those two together here, but like the idea is that when I go to the chapel every day and I kneel down or sit down before the tabernacle, it's a time for me to spend time with Jesus um, apart from the active ministry that he is about in the salvation of the world. It's like, no, I could just love you here and you can love me here and we can just hang out. I can tell you what's going on. You can tell me what's going on. I can journal about it. I can pray to you. I can sing to you. I can do all these different things. I can just be with you, you know? And, um, and he is, he's our best friend and our lover, the lover of our souls. And he's with us in the tabernacle. So why would I want to go spend time with him apart from the, the action, you know, I mean, and then the action is awesome. And the action is the inexhaustible treasure of the mass, you know, like, but like, but I also want to be with him beyond that, you know, so it is lovely. Yeah. I, I worry sometimes, you know, you get that, that idea of like, all right, adoration. So, so wonderful. Um, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's have it. Um, but then the mass is so wonderful too. And sometimes you'll get uh, pushback on, on the idea of adoring the Lord in the Eucharist uh, because it seems like it's going to take away from the mass. Um, or, and this is actually an interesting one that uh, was presented to me recently, and I don't know enough about it, so <laughs> I'm probably not qualified to talk about it here, but uh, the idea that that adoration of the Blessed Sacrament the way that we practice it today is a, a relative in the history of the church, a relative novelty um, that keeping the presence of, of keeping the Eucharist present in the church has, has always been, been done. But the idea of the monstrance benediction and everything else uh, was relatively new. Now, I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but anyway, I've just never been able to wrap my mind around the idea that there's a contradiction or that in any way these things, these two things can't possibly be co- complementary. Like, how can you go to Mass and, and then be introduced to Eucharistic adoration and not want to go to Mass and receive the Eucharist? Right? <laughs> like, you go to adoration, you're going to want to receive the Eucharist, and it's, it's so powerful. Yep. The other one that always gets me is, is uh, are, are young people able to understand it? Do they, do they get it? Um, I remember this was like 10 years ago, 11, maybe longer than that. I don't know. I've, I've been a priest too long now. It's crazy. <laughs> but I was at a, a, a youth event and they were going to have Eucharistic adoration. And I said, how long does it usually go? Because I was the priest who was running it. I needed to make sure that I was keeping to the schedule and everything. And they said, well, Father, we kind of, 
we, we kind of go freestyle and we just see how long they can handle it. And so, so far the, the longest time we've done it at one of these events was, was 15 minutes. I was like, you did adoration for 15 minutes? I'm like, yeah, that's, that's all the kids can handle. I'm like, well, what'd you tell them? Well, we don't really tell them anything. We just kind of have them do it. I'm like, well, they're capable of more than that, you know? So <laughs> they're like, well, maybe you take a few minutes. Um, we, we can fit five minutes in the schedule here. Explain Eucharistic adoration and the church is teaching on the Eucharist to them there. Great. So I've got five minutes. I'm going to tell you everything I possibly can about the Eucharist, about what the church teaches and what Eucharistic adoration is. Those kids knelt in silence for an hour. And then I invited them to come to come closer to the monstrance and to bring particular intentions that they might have and to just come up. They formed a line and one by one they came up and that line lasted for the full hour. And it was like the most incredible thing. I said, and the whole time I was, my, my prayer was, I, I don't, I don't care what I said because I don't know if anything that I said to them made, made sense, but Jesus, you do the, you do the work. And that's the thing. Bring people just to adoration and Jesus will do the rest of the work. Jesus will do it. Um, you know, Monsignor Powers at the neck, mm -hmm. right? Did he ever tell you part of a huge part of his vocation mm -hmm. story? I'm going to, I'm going to tell a little bit of his vocation story in the hopes that he'll come on this show and also um, like tell something of his vocation story. Cause it's really great. When he was a kid uh, growing up here in the diocese of Bridgeport, uh, he got a job and, and he was doing maintenance at his church. And so part of the deal was he had to go in and vacuum the church in the mm -hmm. afternoon. But oftentimes in the afternoon, people on their way home from work would stop into the church mm -hmm. to pray. And he was instructed if somebody mm -hmm. comes in, turn off the vacuum cleaner and just mm -hmm. be quiet. And so instead of standing there doing nothing, and this is, of course, long before cell phones too, <laughs> he would sit in the back pew, turn the vacuum cleaner off and sit there and people would come in and pray. And he'd find himself just mm -hmm. praying. And the more he prayed, the more he was falling in love with the Lord. And it was just because he was trying to do his job and turn the vacuum cleaner off, mm -hmm. but it was Jesus doing the mm -hmm. rest of the work. Isn't that, so it, great. it's, it's amazing. So great. Yeah, it's so great. There's a there's a story about a guy. This guy, the, the guy who the story is about, told me the story about himself. But he kind of told it in third person, uh, as if it wasn't about him. But he said he he said he knew a guy who uh, was a Jew, but he was an atheistic Jew, and uh, his buddy was this fired up Catholic, and he made him come to church with him, and he made him come to adoration. He's like, I don't want to go with you, this stupid thing. And he's like, just come for come for an hour, come for an hour a week with me. You can bring a newspaper, you can bring a magazine, do whatever you want. Just come with me. And he went. And he like hated it and he couldn't stand it. And it's like, I'm not doing that again. He's like, I'll oh, just come one more time, whatever. And and so he brought his newspaper, his magazine, and this is so stupid. And then and then one time he decided to not not pay attention to his newspaper so much, kind of look around. And then one time he kind of like looked at the host, looked at what other people were doing, looking at the host. And then pretty soon he was talking to the host as if the host might be there. And then he was talking to the host as if the Jesus was actually in the host. And, then pretty, and within a year he, he converted, uh, was baptized and, and was uh, living a daily communication life uh, at Holy Mass. <laughs> it's like, okay, that is awesome. You know? It's just, awesome. it's amazing. Yeah, well, Jesus is real. So <laughs> yeah. And he's, he's calling people like he, he wants yeah. this. He wants yeah. this. Ah, oh, man. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm really excited about the Eucharistic revival. Mm -hmm. Really excited to see how, to see how it yeah, goes. Yeah, me too. Um, mm -hmm. What would you ask of priests as the Eucharistic revival is taking off? Uh, what would you want your brother priests to know? Uh, how would you want them to approach this? Um, and, and what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah. First and foremost, um, 
to be men before the Lord, um, to treasure the gift of the Eucharist for themselves in their private prayer, um, to be daily enriched by the relationship with him. Uh, there's no substitute. And um, mm. almost everybody that I talk to, you know, says, you know, you guys can do whatever you want, but if the priests don't, if the priests don't lead it, then we're not going to get it. And they're they're pretty much for the most part right, um, but we don't feel any yeah. sense, you know, that we can just go around from the revival. We don't feel any power to just go around and boss priests around. Like uh, we we can make invitations to parishes to dioceses, and we can make we can make invitations in all these different ways. But like we we know that to be true as well. It's like the priest is the, is the father of the parish. And so as the priest goes, so, so his parish goes. Um, and mm-hmm. so one of the elements at the very heart of the Eucharistic revival is the priest would uh, be before him and love him um, and give everything over to him daily um, in a loving relationship. I mean, and this is what this is what Pope Benedict was trying to do in the year of the priest or the year of the Eucharist. I think it was the year of the priest. He's like, I will give you an indulgence, Father, if you pray the liturgy of the hours before the Blessed Sacrament. Why was he doing that? Because he knows that Jesus in the Eucharist uh, is the hidden source of the entire the entire ecclesial life. Um, so, uh, I mean, that'd be first and foremost to the brothers is uh, be before the Lord. Uh, stay, uh, stay confessed. You know, uh, if you sin, go to confession. Mm. Stay before the Lord. Uh, read the scriptures. Talk to Jesus. Fall in love with him. Uh, renew your love of him. And then don't be afraid to just share that. With the faithful, share, just share it with them. Don't be weird, you know, in sharing it. But like, don't don't think that you can't share. Share your love. Share your love. Share your joy. I know you're so good at that, Father. You're you're such, you've always been such a joyful presence. Um, and so like, I'm sure that. But don't be weird is really the most okay. important advice we'll ever give to a priest. Just don't be weird, Father. Fa- Father, don't be <laughs> the Eucharistic revival model. Father, don't be weird. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's first and foremost. And then I mean, we're we're hoping that priests will go back and. Um, make sure that they're paying attention to what the church is asking of them, you know, for the celebration of the sacraments mm-hmm. uh, and to do things according to the to the right of the church. I mean, the, the parishioners have a right to the right of the church. And so we have to give them the right. I mean, we have to give it to them. I mean, that's what the that's what uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium and I maybe mean, it's the germ says that, that the faithful have a right to the right. <laughs> yeah, so we have to give it to them. Um, and then what are ways that we can beautify uh, beautify the Mass, uh, whatever that looks like? I mean, really not just like physical beauty, but like beautify. It's a, it should be the most beautiful experience for people. Mm-hmm. And so whatever we can do there. And then um, how can we really equip our parishioners to be missionaries? Um, we're calling it Eucharistic Missionaries. So we have an entire initiative launched for that. But uh, And that means both through word and deed. Uh, but to equip the parishioners, mm-hmm. like if you love him and you know that, you know that he has rescued you, and is saving you for heaven, then you should be thinking the same way towards your brothers and your sisters, your your co-workers and others. Like, you don't want them to perish. You want them to go to heaven. And the way the way by which this is going to happen is for them to uh, embrace the sacramental life of the church. So we want pastors to to be at the service of the parishioners, to build them up that way and to, to push push them out, to really push them out there because otherwise they're just going to sit around. you got to push them out. Uh, Pope Francis said, it's like, uh, we don't need to over-clericalize the laity. We don't need more people. In the, we don't need more lay people in the sanctuary and we need more lay people in the streets winning their neighbors to Christ. It was one of the first things he said as Pope and I was like, dude, spot on, you know, so. um, Right on, exactly. So, but, um, but but again, at the center, um, it's be a lover of Jesus. Hmm. Yeah. How does it work for somebody to become a Eucharistic missionary? A lay person wants to come forward and and do something. What's the, what's that process? So we have a website, eucharisticrevival.org. We also have 
we have three websites, eucharisticrevival.org, eucharisticcongress.org, and eucharisticpilgrimage.org, and all three of them lead to each other. Uh, they're really beautifully designed that way. Um, but in eucharisticrevival.org, you can sign up um, for further information, get involved or whatever it is, and you put in your email address mm -hmm. and you start getting emails inviting you to become a prayer partner, inviting you to move into Eucharistic missionary, inviting you into the different things that you could be equipped. Because what we're, what we're saying is it's, an, it's, an, it's a national movement. Okay, at the official level, so we're we're talking to dioceses, we're talking to parishes, um, and we're having a big national event next year. But it's also a grassroots event, which is that anybody who wants to opt in for themselves, they don't need to be told to opt in; they can just opt in. So we've made provisions for that, and it's not going around anybody. It's just saying, hey, if you if you come across this and you are interested in this, you can just hit this button, and we will we will build you up to be you know a faithful member of your parish and your diocese. But we'll we'll take you where you're at, and, and we're on with you. You know, so um, I think there's like. 30,000 people uh, signed up to be prayer wow. partners. And so they're gathered. Oh, How many people want to gather up every month and they're interceding for the success of the Eucharistic revival on a big Zoom call with yeah. how many thousands of people are showing up? I'm like, that's awesome, you know? Um, and so similarly with the Eucharistic missionaries, that'd be the same thing. And then we have a newsletter, Heart of the Revival newsletter that goes out every week. So you can sign up for that. So there's lots of different mm -hmm. signups to get tapped into the revival uh, in its different ways. So, and, but I think the the biggest push for the Eucharistic missionaries, even though it's being launched right now, the biggest push for it is going to be coming out of, you know, at the Congress next year and flowing out from the Congress next year. It's going to be like, we come to okay. the Congress. It's the two words for the Congress is encounter and mission. So you come, you have this encounter at the end of the parish year of the Eucharistic revival. Now we're moving into the third year, 2024, July, which we're calling the missionary sending year. That's really where we want to equip and send uh, and bless and send out Eucharistic missionaries through the whole country and kind of have a corporate mm -hmm. uh, send off. But people can start doing it now too. Awesome. Oh, this is going to be great. It's going to be so good. Okay. Well, I got to get in touch with our diocesan Eucharistic Revival Coordinator. I've got to find out who that is. I know who's taking care of the, the procession part. Mm -hmm. So I, it might be the same guy. It might not be. I'm going to find out, make sure I get a Eucharistic preacher to come here uh, and then start working out how, yeah, how this Eucharistic Revival is going to take, take root here in the parish. I'm, I'm so excited about this. Um, well, listen, Father, thank you so much for... Uh, for giving me your time today and uh, and doing this, I'm I'm really excited to see you, uh, for just here right now, just to see you. I'm I'm really excited to see you again, really, but yeah, also really, really excited to see you uh, stepping into this role and and doing this for the church. I'm I'm really grateful to you. So thank you. Keep up the good uh, work. It's, it's my pleasure. It's really a it's really a deep honor. Um, you know, as I said, like I didn't wasn't seeing this kind of thing. So that when my bishop asked me to 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 assist with it, I was like, Bishop, this would be a great honor. Like what? What could I possibly want to do more than help to kindle a living relationship and love for Jesus in the Eucharist for the entire United States? Like, I can't actually think of yeah. something more than that, you know? So, so it's been a great privilege and a great honor. Um, and um, yeah, so, but I'm so grateful to you, Father, uh, for inviting me to be with you today, but also um, that you are uh, caring for your people with a pastor's heart, thinking about how you can engage the revival uh, where you are, because uh, as we just said, uh, the priest in the parish is the one who's probably going to be the one to make the second go. So, grateful yeah. to you. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. It's great to have you. Hey, everybody. This is Matt Sparaza. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Tangent. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to follow us at the tangent underscore Catholic on Instagram. It's one of the ways that we get our content out to you. So once again, thank you for listening and see you next time on The Tangent. God bless.